Hi, and welcome back to This Week in Voice, Season 8. Brand new season, really excited about it. We have posted the full list of participants and participating companies on thisweekinvoice.com. You can check it out there. We're really excited to bring together the conversational AI universe, uh, and we've been doing it longer than anybody expected. So we're grateful for that, and we're grateful for all the participants across a really emergent and positive space for technology. We're going to get into it with Season 8, Episode 1, and we've got a great panel of guests. The first one is Jody Bellani of Fresh River AI. Jody, say hello. Tell us who you are. Tell us about your company. Sure. Thank you, Bradley. Appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. Uh, I'm Jyoti Balani. I'm founder and managing director of FreshRiver.ai. We're a consultancy. We do strategy and delivery of conversational AI and data science uh, services for the Fortune 100, now expanding to Fortune 500. Uh, we began this journey journey about five years ago. Uh, I came in from a corporate background of about 22 years, uh, building products for the wireless, wireline, cloud infrastructure space. And that's about the time that um, natural language processing engines got better. And uh, I branched out on my own, uh, starting a consulting firm. So I'm happy to be here. We've done projects for uh, companies like Citigroup, for Lowe's, for Johnson & Johnson. Um, the list is, is growing. and We're very excited to be here, Bradley. Thank you, and I'm happy to be with the rest of the panelists here as well. Jody, it's great to have you on the show. You do a lot of great work and, and just appreciate everything you're doing. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Next up is Peter Suma of Applied Brain Research. Peter, say hello. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Thanks, Brad. Um, so Applied Brain Research is a company spun out of the University of Waterloo. We've been doing the foundational research is um, explaining how brains work, and so the work of doing that is analyzing brain circuits and looking at what are mathematical models that can be created to see what those circuits are doing. And is that uh, a contribution to you know, how AI works? Can you find things in combing through brain circuits? And believe it or not, that work's been going on at, at the lab at Waterloo for a long time. One of the algorithms that we discovered was uh, a mathematical model that best describes how something called a time cell in the brain, uh, part of the brain called the hippocampus works. And it turned out to be mathematically optimally small for representing and classifying signals. And so we took that, uh, took the math model and designed a computer chip with it. And that chip is a time series processor. And what's the biggest time series workload out there that people would like to get out of data centers, squish down and put into devices, speech and language. And so we now have the world's smallest speech and language models compressed onto a chip. The chip dev kits will be out at the end of the year. Uh, and this is going to bring uh, speech and language sort of like, um, you know, the virtual assistants you're used to in the cloud, except now compressed onto a device. So it doesn't need a connection. It's more private because your sound doesn't go to the cloud and it operates faster because it's immediate without any latency. And that can bring for product managers can bring voice services to devices like cameras and toys and cars cheaper, less energy, and uh, less expensive overall. So we're excited to be here, really excited to start engaging with the voice community through Project Voice. We'll be at the, the show coming up, and uh, yeah, absolutely fantastic. Thanks for having us, Brett. Peter, it's great to have you, and in full transparency, AVR is one of the first uh, investments of Project Voice Capital Partners, uh, Rolling Fund, and we're excited about that too. Great to have you on the show, Peter. Thank you. Um, Next up is Jason Banks of Invoke. Jason, uh, super interesting company. Tell us who you are. Tell us who you're with. 
Thanks, Bradley. Uh, my name is Jason Banks. I'm the Vice President of Business Development for Envoke. We are a 20-year-old uh, speech recognition provider, uh, primarily in the healthcare space. Our focus is on at-home clinicians that are uh, typically uh, working in a home health, hospice, palliative care uh, setting, but also, you know, a physician at home practice as well. And uh, what we're uh, enabling is for those clinicians to document at a faster rate of speed, more accurately than they could uh, via typing. And that's just the base layer. We build a lot of machine learning and tools on top of that, that would enable sort of uh, smart charting uh, as they go. But it's, uh, it's uh, really wonderful. We've got a lot of momentum in the industry and, and uh, happy to be with, with the rest of the panel today. Jason, it's been great to get to meet y'all and learn more about what you do. And we're honored to have you join us. Thank you for making the time. Thank you. So with that, I'm Bradley Metrock, CEO of Project Voice, and we're going to get on into the news. And we've got a really interesting story for uh, story number one of season eight. And I'm going to read it. Uh, I'm going to read the headline out loud. It's from Time uh, Magazine. OpenAI used Kenyan workers on less than $2 per hour to make ChatGPT less toxic. So um, as we always do with the show, we have a rotation and then we sort of open the floor for conversation. And Jody, I'm going to start with you. Um, you're th this is an interesting story. This came out yesterday while I was still at Digital Book World and happened to see it. And fortunate when it came out so we can include it. Um, your thoughts? I would love to hear them. Sure. Um, you know, this is not news per se, right? If you think about smart speakers, uh, we've seen this over the last couple of years ourselves, uh, where workers, low-paid workers globally, uh, even going back, right, the internet, uh, to keep images that are, um, you know, not for, for viewing, uh, to keep us safe. Uh, so it's not a new thing, but the problem now we have is with these newer technologies coming in, they're following the same path. Right. So this is the dichotomy of uh, these models that need human intervention to keep us safe. But it's at the cost of human psychology and uh, mental hurt. Right. Um, uh, as the story goes, uh, which you know is, is a little disturbing. Actually, it's a lot disturbing is that the workers that were doing this were uh, actually haunted by the images that they're seeing. So the question is, you know, do we continue to need humans to do this or could we actually leverage AI itself to find these images, right? So I would encourage and challenge, um, you know, those in the, the, the labs and the R&D, you've got to find a better way to do two things, right? One, yes, we need to keep uh, humanity safe from some of the disturbing stuff that's out there. But two, we cannot do it at the expense of the human condition. So, um, you know, I'm a believer in human first capitalism and activism. I think there is a way to do all three and we just have to push harder. I think we've got the best brains, uh, you know, in industry uh, and, and, the, and the, the world at large, right? It's a, it's a flat world, as Thomas Friedman says, to bring that to bear. It's too easy to just go and say, hey, we're gonna take these group of humans. They don't have any other jobs. We're gonna give this to them. Yes, you created, you know, economic lift, but at what cost, right? So that's really how I'm thinking about this. 
Um, that, you know, there is a, where we're actually exploring this, um, you know, I've been incubating a training program for the last uh, two and a half years, started in the pandemic because of the talent gap uh, in this space, also for training uh, algorithms. Uh, so we're looking at expanding this out into the world where people get paid uh, not just for training these algorithms, but as royalty, right? As blockchain comes on and you know starts to become mainstream, we're a little away from that, but the royalty payment. So we're really connecting the dots to say, how do we do this in a safe way? How do we lift people out of their you know low socioeconomic status and still deliver a quality product? That's really where I think our challenge is. You you lasered in on on you know um, kind of the abuse part of the story, and it's it's interesting because um, uh, I mean we all remember that story about Facebook, whatever that was, about their uh, moderators needing to seek mental health help uh, for seeing pornographic images and abusive images and stuff like that. It's um, you know, uh, I like the way you phrased it, you know, responsible capitalism, basically it's, you know, there's, there's room for capitalism, but even for someone like me who uh, is a little bit more unabashed about it, there's limits to everything. And, and this kind of scrapes up against that. I think you phrased that really, really well. Um, Peter, I'm going to go to you. Same question. Interesting story, a very impactful story. People are going to be talking about your thoughts. Um, so <clears throat> I think all the comments made, I, I agree with the, uh, maybe I'll just try and say, where might the the next trajectory of all this end up? Um, so uh, first to note that uh, the, the uh, public relations exposure of the story and what happened um, has caused the company that was doing the work, one of the OpenAI's uh, uh, subcontractors has pulled back from that kind of business. Um, but yet the advances of AI, you know, very much require this. Um, governments are also other connecting other lines of disturbing content and manipulation. Governments are also looking into laws around regulating the increasing um, negative effects of these kinds of content on the networks. So uh, the worker side, there are protections even in Kenya. I just quickly looked it up before the call. And Kenya has a number of where this work took place has a number of protections around worker health and safety. Uh, the U.S. has occupational worth, worker health and safety laws. So it's not um, unthinkable that what might begin to happen is more and more application of these kinds of laws to those kinds of working environments now that there's attention on it. I don't think it's a bad thing. It's certainly going to raise the cost of doing training, and training is already very expensive. Um, but that said, it is the right direction. So ultimately speaking, proper frameworks, proper awareness for the workers that are doing this kind of work, the same kinds of training methods, I think, in occupational health and safety that are used in the medical professions, in, you know, fire response and police. There are methods for training people to develop psychological uh, both resistance and also recover from the harm of these kinds of things. I can imagine how damaging it is, but I think we need to just apply those. Um, now, on the technological side, the real hope is that self-supervised learning, pre-training, clustering, and all of these other methods, um, you know, the test data set accuracies on labeling harmful data um, are up in the 86, 87% range. Again, I was just checking on papers with code this morning about this. Um, so in the wild, what are those efficiencies? Um, they're still not rivaling human as far as I know. 
But I do think and have recently read comments, I think it was by Yann Lacoon about Facebook having gone a long way in uh, automating the detection of these things. And the more we automate, um, the more that we reduce the need for humans to do the labeling and therefore less uh, you know, social harm. So a combination of raising the wage rates, uh, enforcing the laws we have, putting the techniques around supporting the people doing the choosing to do this kind of work, um, I think will go a long way to reducing the exploitive aspect of it and making it an actual profession and then automating as much as possible around it. And that rise in labor rates around the work, my last comment will be, will drive the economic value for systems that are automating this kind of monitoring. And that will ultimately result in a good thing where we reduce the amount of human damage to, to achieve the moderated outcomes that we desperately need. Yeah, no, I think that all of that's well said. And, and uh, Jason, I'm going to go to you. I want to ask, you know, <clears throat> same question, interesting story, a lot of surface area to it. You come from a unique uh, point of view on this, just with uh, Invoke's unique point of view um, and, and uh, line of sight on the space. Your thoughts? Yeah, very much agree with uh, with the other panelists and, you know, in, in talking about the, the, the proper way of, uh, you know, automating these processes. I, I'm sort of, you know, glad that uh, these types of stories are coming to light, you know, for, for many years in the, in the manufacturing side. And even today, talk about uh, uh, some of the, uh, uh, you know, so, some of the lithium stories that are coming out in, in uh, Africa, but they're dealing primarily with the physical harms of the work being being done. This is dealing with primarily the mental, emotional, and um, um, you know more psychological uh, you know aspects, negative aspects of the work being done. And and uh, I agree with you. Uh, it, the more that you can automate these processes and bring all the right people to the table, uh, the better off. For, for everyone, including uh, the, the, those those workers. Yeah, <clears throat> complete agreement. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. We, um, uh, I mean, all anybody wants to talk about is OpenAI, right, and ChatGPT. And when, when we rolled out um, the industry landscape map, you know, we rolled it out. It was a lightning bolt, and we said, "Look, this was ad hoc. We're going to add a bunch of people. We, we didn't leave anybody off intentionally. This is just this was just a lot to get our hands around." But we had people. There's people you can go on LinkedIn right now and see where I posted it, where people are saying, um, "You know, OpenAI should have been like 100x larger and make everybody else smaller." Because they're really in, and I'm paraphrasing them, I'm kind of, uh, you know, some of them are more direct about it than others. They're really all that matters. So why are they, why is everybody else with them? And my response was, give it time. You know, uh, we have a way of, um, <laughs> I mean, it's just our nature is to attack the front runner. And that's exactly what's going on here. I think that while the story uh, is very interesting and I think it's uh, highly legitimate, you know, you have to take pause at how time presents this. And I'm going to read it again. OpenAI used Kenyan workers on less than $2 per hour to make Jeep. And this is the key part at the end, to make ChatGPT less toxic. So in other words, <clears throat> it's just an assumption. It's just a given that everybody in the universe understands that this thing is toxic. 
And uh, this company hired people and manipulated them and took advantage of them uh, to make it less toxic. So, you know, it's it's um, we we want to shield people from abuse, but I think it's uh, and we talked about that, you know, uh, with some great commentary from y'all. But I also think it is worth noting that um, clearly the media, you, you see a little bit of fatigue, perhaps from the media coming out in this piece and uh, presenting it in a way that's not exactly um, uh, optimal for the company. Um, but uh, nevertheless, this is going to be one of these stories that people are talking about just because ChatGPT is what everybody's talking about. Any closing comments on any of this before we move on? Yeah, I would just put one comment, Bradley. You know, we have to be balanced, responsible human beings, right? A company that comes out to solve a problem um you know, it's trying to do its best. You know, they could have done it where they didn't have to go, you know, down this path of uh, abuse, et cetera. Why wouldn't they think about the human condition, right? Uh, what, what were the other alternatives, right? If Facebook and other companies, the big tech companies already have access to tech that's doing more detection uh, and then using fewer of that, why wouldn't they have looked at that? But, you know, the media doesn't do anybody any favors. I'm still looking for a media outlet that gives a balanced perspective on everything. And historically, if you think of everything from when we move from horses to cars, right? We move from farms to factories. This is just history repeating itself, but can we do it better this time, right? That's that's the only thing I would say. So I always say, I'm not enamored by any new shiny technology thing that comes out. You gotta look at it, like you said, give it time, but the right people have to be at the helm to make the right decisions, right? So that's my feeling on this, uh, is we gotta stay responsible and we gotta stay balanced. Yeah, well said. And, um, you know, the, the thing about OpenAI, too, is that they they are not a community participant. You know, I, they may feel differently about it. And, and you know, they, um, they're they kind of off on their own, doing their own thing. And I think that that factors into the story as well. They're not part of the Open Voice Network. They're, they don't care about any of that. Uh, they're just out doing their own thing. And I think that... Uh, given the rest of the circumstances is a negative. Uh, Peter and Jason, any any closing comments before we move on? So there's a, an economic opportunity here in, in content identification um, and, you know, encouraging uh, entrepreneurs and large companies to make the state-of-the-art services available as a platform for the entire market, not just not just, you know, the lead participant alone. And so I, th- I hope market forces will weigh in here and make that uh, that service available to all those other companies who are trying to innovate in the space. And that'll be good overall. And it'll also push the science and the application of the science to uh, to automate this sector and reduce the human harm. Agree with that. And, and also uh, to your earlier point of making sure that the the states are, are becoming more involved in uh, legislating and putting guardrails around this to protect uh, those that that may be unaware of the risks. Yeah, well said. And and you know it's uh, <clears throat> you know it's people people like me who don't necessarily like want the government getting involved in everything. But it's like it's with this, it's uh, it's not a bad thing because if not for any other reason, it's just all moving so quickly that it doesn't help to have a broader conversation. Great, great commentary, and and love starting off. Uh, the season with that story. <clears throat> We're going to move on. Uh, the story number two is from ABC News. I'm going to read the headline. 
collection of voice data for profit raises privacy fears. Uh, so what I tried to do with um, these stories to start this off, you know, the season off in general is sort of paint a picture of uh, conversational AI is at a, a period of deep flux. And uh, we're, we're starting to get um, the, a healthy pushback, uh, not just with OpenAI, which we just discussed, but all across the board. And I think it's a good thing. And Peter, I'm going to start with you with this and then uh, Jason and Jody. Um, interesting story here. It's presented in an interesting way. Uh, your thoughts? I mean, it's definitely uh, armed in a study about uh, a couple of years back. I think it was about three or four years ago about what consumers were looking for in terms of edge AI. And one of the aspects that uh, was discussed in the study was specifically about privacy. And uh, if I recall the numbers correctly, it was something in the order of 60 plus percent uh, didn't want the sound going to the cloud if it could be avoided because the it's one thing to give an instruction to a device. It's another thing to realize that the sound of, you know, standard household things going on, arguments, God knows what, uh, is going up into the cloud, and that's being accessed potentially by humans, um, let alone the machinery, uh, and then recorded uh, and used for, you know, training purposes, which all of which is in the use terms of most of these services. Um, and people just don't want that. They want the command to go up and everything else to be negated out. Um, it's almost, they almost feel more strongly about it, I think, and this is just my guess, is in the, the automotive sector, uh, where it's a very confined space and pretty much everything that's said goes through the speaker. Um, and so that ambient monitoring of things unintended versus the command that's given, I think is a major privacy concern. Um, in terms of the, the profit motivation of it and the training set, yeah, it's inherent in the user agreements. If you want the benefit, this is sort of the economic model that has that has evolved with it. Um, and, you know, that's going to be an interesting one over time. Uh, credit assignment in that it's one thing in the training platform. I know that uh, uh, the, the other speaker had mentioned that earlier, which sounds like a great idea for the training side. For the wild side of the public um, and, you know, how their data is being used, uh, my own personal guess is, is the current economic model is likely to be the continuance. So it will be the case that if you want the benefit to use it, you are going to in some way at least be contributing your data to train the system. Personally, I don't have an, an issue with that. I've not, I've not felt a, a privacy concern around it. I would like the termination at the edge, though, of the noise and the background. And that's, you know, one of the reasons we're pursuing the solution we're pursuing. Excellent. Jason, I'm going to go to you, and and obviously this is um, front and center for y'all. Uh, interesting story. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think it is interesting, and and agree with the comments that there's probably going to be uh, a lot more partitioning of you know what can be uh, used, not used, recorded, not recorded, sent up to the cloud, not sent up to the cloud. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that we're seeing, at least in the healthcare side of the space is actually looking at things like tone, tenor, speed of talking to uh, perhaps indicate some health-related uh, issues. And so while, you know, there there is a, a certainly a, a deep concern for using data beyond voice commands specifically, uh, we're seeing, you know, more requests for ambient-type recording 
uh, in, let's say, senior living communities or uh, at-home geriatric uh, uh, members or residents to dictate, hey, is, is there an ability to use the technology uh, in, a, in a more ambient way to, uh, to identify different needs um, or potential red flags or warning signs within those organizations. And, you know, obviously Illinois, where I'm located, uh, is brought out in this is, uh, you know, having some of the strongest laws that requires those companies to obtain written consent from individuals before collecting a lot of that ambient data um, and, and, and really prohibits uh, organizations from selling or profiting off the information. So there's, there's probably, you know, uh, we're probably just at the very beginning stages of looking at, you know, voice assisted products and allowing the consumer to sort of uh, partition off what gets sent up to the cloud, what doesn't and what ultimately gets used. Uh, I think we're just at the very start of that. Excellent. And Jody, I'm going to go to you. Same question. Interesting story. You know, you're all over this just with what you do and with with Open Voice Network as well. Your your thoughts. Yeah. So this is a continuation of what we've seen before. Right. Uh, if you remember Meta and the Cambridge Analytica uh, scandal that came in. Right. If you don't have laws and U.S. does not. Right. Europe's got, you know, have put some frameworks into place. Uh, you know, this whole thing around regular regulation is a last ditch effort if people don't act with integrity, right? So if you use capitalism as your driving force with no concern to anything else, you're gonna see more of this happening, right? Uh, there's actually another study that came out that shows there are data collectors that are collecting our data. So if you think about our data, or you think about our voice, our imagery, anything that is private to us, I think until we can put a framework into place where it's more opt-in versus, you know, hey, we will give you an opportunity to opt out, but by default, we're going to keep opt-in. We're not going to, we're going to see more and more of these issues, right? It's like trying to play, uh, I forget what the game is at these, um, uh, what do they call them? Uh, Whack-a-mole? Whack-a-mole, yes. right? <laughs> this is another whack-a-mole that's going to come out. Um, I think the US, uh, you know, the White House came out with Surprisingly, just a blueprint for AI, but nothing, no teeth in it. And so now everybody's going to market with it. Money is the main objective uh, versus trying to say, you know, how do you do this correctly? No incentives in place, right? Do you use a carrot or a stick for people to do the right thing? You know, healthcare data, uh, uh, social media data. It's not going to work. We're going to see more and more. The media can come out and keep saying it. Nobody's really fixing it, right? I think we have to come together as a community and start to put a framework into place, a little bit of carrot, a little bit of stick. Otherwise, we're going to continue to be products that, you know, other people are going to capitalize on. <clears throat> no, I think that's really well said. And, you know, at the um, I was sort of thinking about at the beginning of toward the beginning of, of COVID. So, you know, May, June ish, 2020. Um, and then through that summer, uh, the folks at Carnegie Mellon <clears throat> came up with a um, solution, I guess I'll call it, that where um, they could listen to your voice and within a, a very high range of confidence um, that wasn't quite good enough for something like the FDA or, or 
regulatory agencies, but still, eh, for the most part, works, could listen to your voice and tell if you have COVID right now or have recently had it. Because COVID in its sort of original version um, altered your, you know, it altered your voice. It altered a lot of stuff. And uh, they could tell. And in talking to them about that project and that initiative, um, as well as just our friends at Canary Speech, who's a company I love as well, um, that li that listens to biomarkers and all that sort of thing. I mean, the data that is there in people's voice, separate and apart from the words that they're actually speaking and all the data inherent in that, just the intonation and the characteristics of the voice, you can gather so much. And somebody's going to abuse that. And there's going to be some major blow up over that. Uh, it's just a matter of time. And it just really, it depends on who it happens to, who the victim is, um, to determine what the trajectory of what comes afterward is. That's just the way our society seems to work. But that's coming for sure. That's, that just, that was sort of what screamed to me from reading the story. But it was interesting to hear y'all's thoughts. Any closing thoughts on that before we move on? Just, just one that, um, Society's faced this problem before of the idea of data being useful in its aggregate form, exploitable, um, but at the same time, um, the sort of social good of, of allowing it to be used in an anonymized form, and it's healthcare. So when we think about speech interaction, when we think about interaction with all of these AIs, um, one of the useful frameworks would be to say, okay, look, let's, as a first cut, Let's start making it the case that um, if you're going to use it in aggregate form, it's got to be anonymized, de-identified. Um, and then, you know, then you can get into the secondary issues of, you know, can you use it to, you know, target an individual in terms of a sales process, in terms of uh, guiding how you interact. In some of those areas, you know, we have to start thinking about basically the same frameworks we use for ethical conduct in financial services or something. Where does uh, selling cross into manipulation or your client rules and things like that? So I think I think the fact that it's an AI system and the fact of the distribution of data and the efficiency of collection and distribution doesn't really change that we've already solved a lot of these problems and maybe thinking more broadly about those and introducing them as best practices in industry. And, you know, I'll leave off the comment, where does the regulation begin? That's a, a bigger question for others to think about. But uh, we're not without models to bring to these hard problems. Yeah, completely agree. Jason, Jody, any closing thoughts or ready to move on? Yeah, I think, you know, just my closing thought on it is just a lot more transparency in, you know, what is being used, how it's being used. And, and I don't know whether that is, you know, coming from, you know, legislation or it's coming from just, you know, really solid actors in the space saying, hey, we're going to be transparent about what we're collecting, what we're using the data for, what exactly we're using and and that ultimately is you know going to win the day from a consumer perspective just the knowledge and awareness of those uh, organizations companies that are actually transparent open uh with how they're using the data what they're using it for and uh and you know really they are winning out in the marketplace yeah i would have one more thing um shareholder 
value, right? So if you think about value creation from a capitalistic standpoint for every company, right? There are There's now louder cries for ESG measurements, right? Indices and metrics. I think if we add the responsible use of AI broadly into it, I think the shareholders will speak with their wallets. Uh, there's actually a nonprofit uh, called Just Capital. Um, Ariana Huffington and a couple of other pretty high profile folks are on there. So they're measuring and putting into place for the Fortune 500 companies, everything from how they treat workers. So I think this might be another measure to put in is the responsible use of AI and auditing, right? If you think about all the audit frameworks, we're going to have to put that into place. And I think the money will speak. If money's not flowing to these companies, um, you know, from an investment standpoint, I think that might be another trigger. Perfect. Yeah. The great commentary all the way around. Appreciate that. And we will move to story number three. This is from our friends at boyspot.ai. Artists file class action lawsuit against Stability AI, MidJourney, and DeviantArt over generative AI art. So um, this article um, is brief, but it covers quite a bit. And Jason, I'm going to start with you uh, and then Jody and and uh, and Peter. Um, Interesting, you know, the pendulum always swings back the other way. We talked about it um, really in context of both these opening two stories. Interesting piece here. Want to get your thoughts. Yeah, so my, my thought is this goes right to the the heart of NFT and does, you know, does part of, uh, you know, artistic uh, impression uh, relate to protection, meaning, you know, if if AI is in this particular case um, relying on you know billions of images, as the article states, and pulling out pieces and parts of those billions of images to create some new uh, AI generated image, is it protected under the law? And you know, I think that we're going to you know get to a point where it is. I think that the the artists that are arguing for protection are, you know, basically uh, equating this to uh, music streaming services and, you know, that there should be a solution for images as well. And so um, I think it's it's going to be, you know, interesting as, as AI continues to uh, work on, you know, image related, not just other artistic forms like music and is there a, a compensation for using pieces and parts uh of those artistics to create something new um and, and so it's you know it's it's monetization of of artistic you know um impressions and you know i was thinking uh to an article that i read the other day about chat gbt and the, and the reality is that it is still reliant on doing a search of human created content. So if you ask, you know, ChatGPT to generate a new mission statement, do a haiku, you know, for you, whatever it is, it's still ultimately relying on human created content to pull that all together. It can't pull it out out of thin air. And so, you know, this is, this reminds me of that in a lot of different ways, the article was. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because um, uh, 
I just read uh, about, um, so Kane Sims of the UX World po- reposted something on LinkedIn that I included in a presentation I gave earlier this week at Digital Book World about this guy, young guy, um, decided to write a book about code uh, that's like a, a long book. And um, he wrote it in a very short amount of time, and he listed ChatGPT as his co-author and um, posted it online and just very proud of himself uh, and uh, just got a bunch of comments, you know, a lot of positive comments. But one of the comments was, how do you how do you plan on um, uh, compensating the rights holders? for the people who actually wrote the book <laughs> um, it presented in, in about that harsher tone or harsher. And, um, and his answer was uh, pretty bad. His answer was, well, I put chat GPT as my co-author. So I, Hey, it, it, we live in, and then he goes on on this little soliloquy on, we live in a time where it's hard to sort of figure out who has what rights. And I'm just like, Ooh. Um, and, uh, uh, it speaks to a lot of the points you were making about uh, <laughs> trying to sort through all of this stuff uh, for the benefit of who who actually came up with the concepts to begin with. Jody, I'm going to turn to you. Um, interesting story. Uh, you know what what Jason said sort of tapped tap into something that I had been thinking about, but I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Uh, what's your take? So, first of all, frankly, I was very surprised that the creators of these platforms didn't actually look at the laws existing. There's gotta be more, I mean, you know, I usually give people benefit of the doubt saying, listen, I think you should have done your research, but I think they're pushing the envelope. Either it's out of hubris to say, well, we can do what we want. And because there's no law that is above uh, the basic law. Um, It'll be interesting to see what, you know, what the law says about this part. So that's part one, part two, Uh, There's actually another story that came out at NPR uh, about this young kid from Princeton that created, also went crazy when he saw chat GPT, he's a CS major, but then he finally realized that these kind of issues, the story that um, you had shared with the the voice bot, he said, how could this actually, could this harm humans and the creativity that they come out with? So he has launched an application called GPT Zero that actually will detect the signature of whether imagery and content was used. I think he's doing it for imagery first. I don't know how he's gonna do it from a content standpoint, but I think it's only a matter of time before, I don't think these platforms will last because you have to have respect for the data that you're using to train your algorithms and respect the law alongside, right? Other than saying, hey, I'm gonna make a quick buck, right? Uh, Make my money and get out before the laws catch up with me. So again, I think it's timing. Um, uh, these are usually the early adopters. I don't want to call them bad actors because, you know, everybody wants to make money. I get that. But you have to look at it from a long game perspective. Um, all these new initial use cases coming out of chat GPT, I think it's just a matter of time before. I don't think they're going to make it, is my view. Because uh, lawsuits like this come on and they slap it on. I think it's, it'll stop the others in their suit. But people will find other loopholes, right? That's just the way, like you said, our society works. <clears throat> complete agreement. And, you know, I lived in Nashville, you know, I met my wife in Nashville, lived in Nashville for 20 plus years. And one of the things I always found interesting about Nashville was the songwriter community, which is, pro, you know, huge and and loud uh, in that city. And um, I, I found it fascinating as I learned about how litigation in 
the songwriting community works. If one songwriter, uh, one musician accuses another of plagiarism, um, accuses somebody from ripping off a, a riff or, you know, something musically or something in words lyrically, um, how that works in court, it is down to an incredible science um, on what they look at down to beats per minute and just like, well, if it's two notes and it's like this, then that's not copying. But if it's three and it's like that, then it is. I mean, it's crazy. And, but it paints a picture of how this is ultimately going to work for stuff like this. And no question the laws will catch up. And some of the stuff, at least there being litigation, is a good deterrent. I, I, I think you phrased that perfectly. Peter, I'm going to go to you. Um, you've heard what the other two panelists have said. Your thoughts on this story. Yeah, so um, I guess a couple of things. Uh, so I will have a couple of different views um, on where it's going. The At the functional end of it, uh, the transformer architecture that's enabling this is basically all about sequence prediction, training up uh, neural nets to be able to generate the next token in a sequence. Um, and as that's now going multimodal, so integrating vision plus language, um, and all of this is driving more and more generative AI. And at the same time, a lot of effort is going into transfer learning and learning of dynamics. And so we're, you know, there's a long discussion to be had here about, for example, how brains work. This is an area that we work in, spent the last, you know, more than 12 years of my life in it, and my partner decades, his whole life in it. Um, and at the end of the day, these algorithms are not doing things the way brains do them, uh, but much more is, under, as I like to say, much, much more is understood about how brains work than most people realize. And these are close to some of the mechanics of the end effect of what how brains work. So when you look at something like an algorithm learning uh, small weight adjustments over millions and millions of samples, billions, um, there is an argument to say that mechanically that's not really doing that much different than a human brain, which has learned by reading all those passages and then being able to compose them again. There is a, you know, there is a good argument to say, though, there is kind of a, a, a certain originality generation um, component that you can claim that humans do have that's unique. Um, but um, a lot of what humans do is repatterning of what they've already learned and trained. So at the moment that you begin to say that, you know, uh, there's at the end of the day, the courts look at the material. They don't go inside the brain of the individual and say, how did you create that song? They say, is that song similar enough to that song by measures of its similarity? Uh, and then they find that there isn't a royalty owed or there has been a copying. And I think you're going to end up, as this plays out, in the same space. And there will begin to be established norms of practice for determining, well, that is a copy, but that is generation from the AI that is not enough to qualify as infringing on this copyright. So my own view would say that it's going to end up being nuanced in practice exactly like um, the cases, and I think Bradley pointed to the best example uh, that's well-trodden is songs because of the economic incentive the courts and society have had to deal with this, and I think it's going to look like that. There are going to be lots of cases where people will bring things claiming infringement or I want a general royalty over the space, as happened with CD royalties, 
Some of that will play out, um, but the more pointed examples will be a base of case law will be built up over the specifics of what we consider too close, so therefore it's a copy, or not close enough, and therefore it is not a copy. So unfortunately, I don't think there's going to be any clear line. And on top of that, the technology is getting better fast, and creativity is becoming, you know, unique creations are things that these tools can do. Uh, and I think increasingly, though, the trend is going to be to give the rights of the new things which will be created, which will be more and more divergent from the training sets as time goes on, that those rights will vest in whoever is using the tool, no different than using Adobe's tools to generate something new. Uh, it's just that more and more parts of that will be automated. So I see a complex landscape in the future that bears a lot of resemblance likely to the way society has arbitrated these, these products or these uh, situations already with human creators. It definitely, yeah. I I think you could easily see it'll be like its own legal realm. And and another, you know, got a friend who practices maritime law, and it's like these niche areas of law where you know over time, it's it's uh, the rule set is well established, but nothing about it it is it is intuitive. It all had to be studied. Um, you know, they're very effective, and I think that's what we'll end up here. Great commentary all the way around. I want to make sure we get to the last story, and I'm going to read this headline. Um, This is from Uproxx. People are testing GPT chat AI. uh, That's a commentary unto itself, what people have called this thing, but I'm going to read it verbatim. People are testing GPT chat AI and sharing their hilarious results on Twitter. So um, there's 10 examples here, and I want to close just by asking each of you uh, what your favorite one is. But I will note that this is what makes OpenAI, this is what just very different, um, is that they're likable. And there, so many people have used this, and they've gained a little bit of utility out of it. There's something funny. Maybe they've done something with their kids. It totally changes the complexion of the ethics discussion in a way that we didn't see with Facebook. Everybody hates Facebook. So it made it real easy like to talk about ethics uh, because they, you know, they, uh, they're such a manipulator and so abusive to begin with. This is, it's, it's different with them and it's going to be real interesting to watch and including the story at the end is a way to illustrate that. But uh, I want to indulge it for a minute and just uh, ask you, there's 10 stories here, Jody, I'm going to start with you um peter and then finish with jason uh what was your favorite one of these uh 10 illustrations they included here so um i had two that uh i'm split on which i think were the funniest one was trying to find a girlfriend proposing to a girl uh and the other one was the admissions council and i say that because i got two boys uh in their early 20s uh and so we talk about these things all the time um i think you know at some point, can people actually detect, uh, you know, whether something is authentic or not from the heart? Um, you know, New York City public schools, you know, banned uh, chat GPT, but I don't think that's the answer either. So I thought this is very interesting. People will try it, but I think young kids will use it for fun. Um, I'm just concerned about the harm that it could potentially cause, right? But yeah, these two were the ones that uh, were a tie for me. Nice, nice. Yeah, no, and completely agree on your your point as well. Um, Peter, same question for you. 
Um, which one of these stood out to you as the uh, the, the champion uh, humor case here? <laughs> yeah, so I'm just I had to refresh my memory to them, but I, I say, I mean, there nothing made me rolling on the floor with laughter. I haven't seen uh, any of the Chat GPT jokes yet that I thought were, you know, uh, fantastically funny. I think the uh, the fun one was the first one on quantum theory and this and this style of of Snoop Dogg. Um, just frankly, because the uh, the mash of those two styles, the mashup, as I might call it, uh, came out pretty cool. And I just thought it was a cute, simple way to do it. Um, on a maybe a slightly different answer, not so much on the fun side, but one I do want to point to as being an emerging thing you're going to see more of is if you look at the one at the very bottom, uh, the biased activist one, uh, just, just FYI uh, to the harm point Joanie was saying, um, I think you're going to see increasing use of these tools uh, for massive uh, manipulation of social opinion due to custom trolling, uh, where the, the algorithms are learning persuasion. And you see beginning evidence there. But today they've been applied in general persuasion, but what happens when they start to get specific um, on that persuasion? And so there, there's an area there that's not so much a funny thing, but which one was impactful maybe. Even that phrase, custom trolling, is gross. <laughs> it is. It's, just, it, it's a <laughs> government committee looking at what's going on with that and if there's ways to put curbs around these things to do it, to, you know, off stop that. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's a concern. It's a concern. So I was surprised to see the activist in the list of examples. Jason, I'm going to give you the last word. Uh, your uh, Your favorite one of these examples here. Yeah, I, I had to chuckle. I get a mental image of my grandmother uh, when I read this, which was uh, somebody's idea of the uh, a fun way to ensure free and fair elections is to have people enter a bouncy house and then land on the uh, candidate of their choice. Uh, can't see that working uh, in mass, but it's very funny. Um, and, you know, that that's the way that I can see, you know, ChatGPT being used for really just fun, lighthearted stuff. I do find it interesting uh, as to how um, institutions of education and specifically higher learning are going to take measures to ensure that uh, the tool is is not being used. It'll be interesting to see how that evolves over time. Uh, yeah, it will. Um, and, uh, you know, my wife and I have an 11 year old son and, um, you know, he, uh, like, like so many kids, it's a struggle to get him to read as much as I would like him to read. And, uh, you know, he, when he finds something he likes to read, it's no problem. If it's not something he wants to read, it's a big problem. <clears throat> and so, you know, chat GPT is made for people like that to, to let me just solve the problem of not reading the thing I don't want to read. So I then don't have to write the thing I don't want to write. And, uh, and then I don't learn anything. And I just, you know, that's no way to go about doing things. Uh, it's kind of self-defeating. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, we're all studying that. Look, this has been great. Uh, I appreciate uh, the time uh, y'all have shared uh, your expertise that y'all have shared uh, with not just me, but the audience as well. It's greatly appreciated. Awesome. Thank you, Brad. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. Great session. Appreciate it. For this week in voice, season eight, episode one. Thank you for watching. If you're watching on YouTube, listening to us, if you're on your podcast provider of choice, 
Until next time.